for staying with us, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 28. Now, if you have read ahead uh, in this and you know that we're entering into a passage that is quite frankly, let's be honest, it's a little strange. We have Saul now will go into a necromancer to try to seek help. And a lot of times, if you've ever done a Bible in the Year program within that and you've read through this passage or you've gone through it through some other reading, you look at this, if you're like a lot of us, you look at this uh, passage and you're like, huh, that's weird. What on earth do I do with this? And we kind of move on. Believe it or not, when I was doing my sermon synopsis, I was kind of being a little bit uh, silly and I said the sermon title is Stay Away From Witches. And so, and that's all I had. And Joseph is like, um, you know, I don't have a lot of songs that go with that. It's a failure on his part, really. But the truth of the matter is, what you see in the Saul's de- desperation is we see a hopelessness that most of us can understand and actually relate to. A hopelessness that has characterized every person in this room at one point in their life. And so while at first glance it may seem foreign and distant and detached from our lives, but in reality, I want to make the case to us this morning that we find ourselves in very, very similar places as Saul this morning. But we have hope. And so let us pray now that the God of hope would open our eyes to his beauty That the Holy Spirit who speaks, who convicts the world of sin and who points us to Christ and regenerates our hearts would be at work filling us with new life in the spirit of revelation this morning. Father, we thank you for your goodness towards us. We have many of us, we have brought in so much stuff this morning. We have brought in so much hopelessness. We brought in so many false hopes and identities within us this morning. By your grace, speak to our hearts and take our eyes off of ourselves and off of the idols we have erected to find hope in and move them on to our one true hope, which is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Be with us now in this time. In your grace, take your word and plant it deep into our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was an interesting moment. We were in my kitchen, and I had a family member who, uh, well, I'll just say he was my uncle. Um, He was in our kitchen. And this great big man, this former college football player for Rice, this man who was always the life of the party, was always this man that was always down for a good time, was in my kitchen. I was, you know, easily half his age, really just in my probably 20s, maybe 30s at the time. And here he was in my kitchen, absolutely sobbing. I had to go pick him up at a place. He didn't live anywhere near us, but I had to go meet him somewhere because he had been completely ran out of gas through a number of addictions, through gambling addictions, and just through a life not lived with a lot of wisdom. He had found himself completely and utterly destitute, without a job. His family was no longer with him. And as I met him, he just broke down in tears. This enormous, 
college, former college football player broken down. He had reached the end of his hope. As we brought him back to our house and he was in, the, in our kitchen, he began trying to grasp. He knew I was in seminary at the time and he began trying to grasp for various hopes. You know what? If God will do this for me, I will do this for him. He was working on what is oftentimes a very transactional view of God, but it is a view of God that many of us have fallen into. He was desperate and he was hopeless. And he was searching for some sense of hope. But what was amazing in that conversation and where I had to gear him away from was away from a transactional sense of hope in which he had to view his hope and what his hope and what would ultimately change his life was not him getting a job, his job back. It wasn't getting his finances back under control. It wasn't even uh, getting his family back. There was another new hope that he needed to fix his eyes to. And he needed to stop instead seeing God as the way to get the hope that he wanted, but instead just understand that Christ himself was his true hope. And that hope would come to him not through anything that he did, but by the matchless, wonderful grace of God by faith. It was a paradigm shift for him. It was life changing in many ways. Now, we can look at that, and it's easy for us sometimes to look and sometimes scorn people who have been in that sort of brokenness. But the truth is, most of us have felt that sense of hopelessness at some point in our lives. We have felt that fear, that sense of, oh my, what does tomorrow hold? There seems to be no hope. And the truth is, the Bible actually makes clear that to each and every one of us, we are born into a state of open rebellion against God. We are born into a state of sin. And the Bible makes it clear that in that state, we are without God and without hope in the world. We enter into this place hopeless. And so we can actually, as much as it may feel weird reading about this king trying to find a medium, a necromancer to to raise somebody back from the dead to hear communication, the truth is we can relate to this far more than maybe that comes to first blush. In fact, it is something that can fit very deep into the core of what many of us may be feeling and may be dealing with. So we pick up this story, this narrative, and 1 Samuel 28, we keep in mind, we had learned from 1 Samuel 20, the first couple verses of 1 Samuel 28, which we talked about last week, the Philistine army and all the kings of the Philistines had gathered together for war against Israel. In fact, now we find that because David was with the the uh, Philistines, the king of Gath had even said, David, it's time for you and your men to come prove your allegiance to us. Come fight for us. And so we find now Saul's response. We see the other side of the story here in verse 3 of chapter 28. Now Samuel had died. Okay, well, we've already seen that. That's already been told to us previously. And when it was told to us previously, we saw how David, God's true anointed one, had responded to the death of Samuel. Now we're going to see how this, in many ways, usurper, this false king, is going to respond to the death of Samuel. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. 
And Saul had put out the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. That, that's commentary to help us understand what's about to happen. And the Philistines assembled and they came and they camped at Shumim. Saul gathered all of Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. Okay, and so if you see here, you can take a look at the map. I know it may be a little bit difficult to read the words, but right there, kind of middle of the map, there is a green line that goes up into kind of a reddish pink star. That is Gilboa. If you see the red line that goes above it, it goes and it points to a place that is right above there. That is Shunem. So what you see is the Philistine armies are not coming in from the south. They're trying, they've gone north and they're trying to separate Israel from their northern brethren. So it's a way to try to split the Israeli forces that are going on. Now, Saul had gathered all of Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. Now listen to this. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Now, Saul, as we look at here, this really kind of in many ways should have been familiar territory. This has happened multiple times throughout um, throughout Saul's kingship. In fact, we find that Saul was in constant battle with the Philistines. God had shown himself faithful over and over again. But yet what we see here is yet again, part of the reason, or I should say maybe even the main reason why Saul is rejected as king. He did not have a heart that ultimately trusted, that understood that Israel was God's kingdom. And so yet once again, he falls to his insecurities more than he is able to trust in the living God. And of course, this is the culmination, kind of the end of all of that that is taking place within there. Now, and once again, he is, he is looking for peripheral religious activities, things that he could control. Ways to say, hey, let me, let me find ways that I can control God. That's what he's looking for within there. And we find that God is not answering him. And he's feeling sorry for himself, but we can understand why. If we've been following 1 Samuel as it is, we understand why God isn't answering him. We understand why his heart is really so afraid. Keep in mind, what are some of the ways that God has spoken his, uh, to Samuel? How is some of the ways that he's shown his provision for Samuel? Well, one of them was the provision of David. David was God's anointed one who had tremendous, unparalleled accept, uh, 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 victories against the Philistines. But yet, what has Saul done in his jealousy and in his open rebellion to God? He not only tried to kill David, he's driven him away, but by his own knowledge, this one who is so successful in battle is now with his enemies, the Philistines. And Saul knew this. That's the reason he stopped chasing him. We saw that in chapters 27. So not only has he lost his best general, the general that the Lord was with, quite clearly, out of his jealousy, for all he knows that David is fighting with the Philistines now. Secondly, what we've seen is he has, he has killed all the priests. 
And his fit of rage, and once again out of his jealousy, he killed all the priests. And the one priest who survived took the ephod, which was a clear communication way that he could receive oracles from God. He's also continually alienated himself from obeying the voice of the Lord. And so what you see here is a consistency of one who has put himself in this position. Even his own son. One of the ways that God has provided with the Philistines was through his own son, Jonathan. Jonathan was one who put his trust in the Lord. But what we have seen is Saul has alienated himself from his son, almost turned his son in some ways to an enemy and won't even listen to the voice of his son. So all the ways that God has in many ways used and spoken to Saul in the past, out of his own open rebellion, he has put them away. And instead of coming to himself and saying, wow, this is bad, what I really need to do is fall on my knees in repentance because I'm clearly seeing that God is not with me. Instead, he is taking on the posture of a victim. And so we pick up the story in chapter 28, verse 7. And then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. Now, this is a big deal, folks. It, it had already said that Saul had put out all the mediums and the necromancers. That's huge. Now, this was a very important, very big practice in the ancient Near East, in the Canaanite culture. We see all kinds of evidence of this in the extra biblical literature within that. And God made it quite clear, quite clear in the law in Deuteronomy and Leviticus that the people of Israel were to have nothing to do with this. They were to put away all of this. They were to have nothing at all to do with this. But now... Saul, in his rebellious heart, says, I need a medium. I'm going to go inquire of her. And his servant said to him, behold, there is a medium at indoor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments. Now, keep in mind that we've seen, as we've told the story of Saul throughout, garments show a certain particular symbolism within this. We saw that it was Saul's robe uh, towards uh, Samuel's robe. It was a symbolism that the kingdom was going to be lost from him. We saw that Jonathan took off his royal uh, garments and gave them to David. It was almost kind of a, there was very much a symbolism where Jonathan intended or not, he probably did, of, of bestowing royalty to David within there. We saw that as Saul had tried to chase David to Ramah, as the spirit of the Lord came on him, he willfully took off all of his clothes, all these vestiges, these symbols of his royal authority. And now, as he goes into the darkness to seek this medium, he takes off all of his clothing, his vestiges of royalty. And he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night, and he said, divine for me a spirit and bring up for me whomever I name to you. Now, this is quite a desperate and perilous journey because, again, if you look where Mount Gilboa was, again, towards the end of where that, that green line is, where there's that pink star, 
and you see where Shunem is, which is right above it, where the end of that red star is, there's one dot above it. You may not be able to read that, but it says indoor. And so what he had to do was essentially disguise himself at night and cross the enemy lines to be able to get to this, uh, to this witch, really, to this necromancer, to this medium within there. And so he finds himself in an extraordinarily desperate place to try to find out. And this is what this is doing. This is really bringing out the reality of Saul's rebellion. Keep in mind, when Samuel first rebuked and gave the prophecy, uh, the prophecy of Samuel losing his kingdom, he tells him, quite frankly, you have disobeyed the voice of God and rebellion is the same as the sin of divinity. What you see within Saul, what has been really exposed is Saul's desire to control life rather than to submit to the living God. And what God is doing in this situation is he's allowing the full fruit of his rebellion to come out and to be seen within there. Samuel's prophecy comes out and it shows the utter still place of rebellion and open hostility and lack of obedience before God. And quite frankly, as I've said, we can all relate. You see, friends, again, each and every one of us, we find ourselves in a state of open rebellion against God. And we may not see that, we may not call that, and certainly, probably, Saul would not say he's in a state of open rebellion. I mean, after all, it seems like he was entering into this in a fasted state. He was seeking prophets. He was seeking somebody to give him a symbolism. Later on, as he speaks to this medium, he's going to say, as Yahweh lives. He doesn't just say, as a God lives. He uses the personal name of Yahweh. It's really blasphemous the way he says it. He would in many ways say, I'm not in open rebellion to God, but yet everything that he is doing, the Bible is screaming, you are looking for a hope that is apart from God. And in our society, we may, we may think that we're not in open rebellion to God, but anything, anytime we try to find a hope apart from God, we are demonstrating our hostility, our, our rebellion against the living God. I was listening to uh, the story, it was an incredible story of a, of a young man um, who, who had this conversion story to Christ. And um, this was a young man who was in Ivy League. He was in Cornell uh, studying physics, studying astrophysics, I believe, if I remember correctly. Uh, and he was raised in a non-Christian home. Uh, and it's not so much that he was antagonistic towards God or atheistic towards God. He just saw no use for God. He viewed himself as a basically good moral person. And so it's irrelevant whether there was a God or not, because if there's a God, why would the God be hostile to him? He could just go about his very important, what was the most important thing to him, which was his academic studies, which was his career. And certainly he was pursuing it at a very elite level. But his twin brother uh, ended up coming to Christ, became a Christian, which is a story in of itself. But as his, his twin brother came to Christ as a, and became a believer, he began trying to evangelize his brother. And at first his brother was saying, okay, well, for the sake of the relationship, I'll investigate the claims of Christ. Now, during this time, he had come to realize that, yes, there's a lot of validity. There's a lot of 
truth claims. There's a lot of good signs that point to the truthfulness of Christianity. But he was still in a place where he says, what does it really matter? I'm a pretty good person. What does it really matter? And this all came home to him when he was looking for his, what was his, at that time, dream job with the NSA. And so he goes to, this, to the NSA to get this dream job. And then that's, it begins with this really intensive, extremely long polygraph test. And through the few questions in the front end that he wasn't prepared for, he saw, I need to really take this very seriously. And so during that time, as he began asking questions, he began having to really dig deep to talk about everything wrong he had ever done. And after a three-hour interview, he left there saying, wow, I really do need a Savior. And so it wasn't actually through the arguments, though they certainly helped, of apologetics, it was realizing, hey, I need a Savior that the Holy Spirit broke him. And he began to see his need for God, and he ended up calling his brother saying, "Um, I think I'm a Christian now because I just understood my sinfulness. I just saw full blank what I would refuse to see myself, which was my open, rebellious heart. And the truth is, that is characteristic of every single one of us. Because until you are finding your hope in Christ, you, my friend, are without hope. And that's just the bottom line. You see, many of us, we want to approach it the way my uncle did. We'll say, okay, I'll have God, but ultimately my hope is not God. My hope is to use God to get what I want. I want my family back. I want my job back. I want my finances to be secure. I want my kids to not be lost in addiction and drugs. But the hope that comes to us is saying, no, God, you yourself, you are my hope. But friends, when we are without hope, when we don't have hope in God, we turn to all kinds of places to find that hope. We turn to all kinds of places. We often look at our secular world and say, hey, you know, in the secular world, we're really uh, removing ourselves of unbelief. And the truth is, we are wired for hope. We are wired for something, for transcendence. True, real, consistent atheism is hard. We We will almost assuredly be inconsistent in some ways because we will look for some sense of hope. If you've ever seen a people group or a people who have truly lost their hope, it's a scary thing to look at. It's a truly frightening thing to look at when you see that. We are wired for hope. And frankly, people, a lot of times who have lost that kind of hope, they don't last long. We seek to fill those gaps. And we're even seeing this a lot in our cultural society there in the West. As much as we say that we're doing away with belief, that is not actually true. We are filling it with all kinds of other types of belief. And so we're seeing the rise of new age religion. We're seeing the rise of different forms of paganism. As I talk to my boys, yes, in in their schools, yes, they see a lot of atheism, but they also see a lot of crazy stuff that I never saw at all growing up. One conversation, my son said he was sitting at a table with a guy who was literally admitting to... uh, Um, uh, making sacrifices to demon, and the other person at the table was an admitted Wicca witch. This is in Arlington, Texas, folks. 
We cannot handle a vacuum. We will fill that up with something. But the thing is, even if we're not turning to other types of spirituality, we, we will create other types of hope that come in. And we have all kinds of modern magic. We kind of scoff going to see a, a medium. What a fruit loop. You know? And we scoff at that. We are people of 2023. We are people of the internet. We are people who understand physics. Well, some of you may be. I'm not. But, but some of you have the theory. Some of you may actually understand some sort of physics. Technology. Right? And so we have all these things in modern, but in reality, we still turn to these things as our own modern day forms of magic. Our own, what magic is at its core is trying to say, I'm going to have something that can manipulate my life to make it easy for me to get what I want. That's the core of all magic, and it is right there present in our world today. Our modern day types of magic come to us from technology. We look at technology as something that will give us hope. We look at technology as something that will make all of our problems go away. The other thing that we look at, quite frankly, to make it go away is when we have a problem, guess what? Amazon.com probably has a solution. We can go and we can turn to Amazon.com. We are filled with commercialism. We can buy our way out of our problems and our needs. We can fix it with economy. You might say, well, I don't shop at Amazon. Well, pick your place. Or maybe it's just your hope is in the money you have saved in your bank account, your IRA. That is your fountain of youth. That is your magic elixir that will make, give you hope. We turn to our entertainment. Well, I can just have this placebo that gives me hope, that can get me entertained throughout my life. We have our self-help hacks, right? Learn to hack your way into a better life, a better way of doing your day. And so we have our, our high priests of how to hack your body, how to hack your mind, how to hack your emotions, how to hack your calendar, how to hack your work. And then we also have our modern day elixirs, our modern day medicines, our modern day pharmacology. And so when we struggle with depression or anxiety, we turn immediately to these elixirs. Now, let's be very clear here. I am not against medication. I've been very open throughout the last several years that I've struggled with anxiety. And for a year, I was on uh, anxiety medication. Okay, I am not against medicine. That's not what I'm saying. But we also have to acknowledge that in our modern day medicines, we often have said, hey, let's turn to them. Let's just view ourselves as a bunch of chemicals operating together rather than dealing with some of the basic core issues that have caused us to be in there, in this place to begin with. Yes, sometimes there are biological things that are going on. I do not deny that in one bit. But when we turn to these modern day elixirs as our only source of hope and to be our salvation, we set ourselves up and show ourselves to be really in the same way looking 
for magic to save us. Now you might say to yourself, what is it? Where is our hope? Can there be found hope? And the good news, my friend, is there is, the Bible teaches us of all, of the greatest hope we could find. When I open the service, typically when I do do it, I don't do it much anymore. One of the things I always like to do is say, you can come in here today knowing that you're welcomed, that you're received, that you are loved. Why? Because there's a hope that isn't found in you. There's a hope and there's a love that is there that is actually comes to you from the living God that is faithful, that is sustainable. And I always end the services with the same benediction from Romans chapter 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The truth is, the Bible teaches us and points us to the reality of hope that is ours by grace. But we understand that while Jesus is gentle and lowly, he's not going to be manipulated. He loves us too much to allow our hopes to be in these false idols that we want. These false idols of our success. These false idols that are culturally driven that will ultimately never satisfy. But what's interesting within this, you may say, well, where's the hope here for Saul? I mean, isn't actually God actually ignoring Saul? Actually, no, he hasn't been. Saul is absolutely incorrect when he's talking about how God isn't speaking to him. If we've been following along, we've seen that God has spoken to Saul all over the place. He's spoken to him consistently. He has warned him through prophecies, through Samuel, through others. He has revealed himself all over the place. But yet Saul has refused to listen to God. The answer, the problem isn't that God is not speaking. The issue is in Saul's rebellion, he has muted God. Anything that, he is, that, that God has said that he doesn't want to hear, he just turns the volume down. God has spoken in many ways to King Saul. And the issue is, instead of hearing and submitting himself to what God has spoken to him, he's killed the priests. He's driven away David. Anything that has tried to tell him what he doesn't want to hear, he says, nope, don't want to hear that. Why? Because that's not what his hope's in. Even in this and what he's asking, what, he's asking the wrong question. He's not asking God, what should I do? God, how do I submit to myself to you? The question he's trying to ask God is, God, how do I keep my kingdom? How do I remain king? Well, God's already answered that question. You're not. I'm giving it to somebody else. But yet he has continued to ask the same question over and over again. And God in his grace and his mercy isn't done speaking to Saul. We pick up the passage now in verse 9. 
And so he's gone to this medium. And the woman has said to him, surely you know that Saul, what Saul has done. He's disguised. He hasn't declared who he is. How he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord. Here's what I was referring to earlier. He, referred, he, he swore to her by the Lord as the Lord lives. Isn't this crazy? One commentator said it's like, it's almost like a, a, an adulterer promising his mistress according to by the life of his wife. It's, it's just bizarre. But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And then the woman said, who shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God. The word, the Hebrew word there is Elohim. Elohim. <clears throat> and uh, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said to him, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. And then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Now, when we first things, when we read this, we begin asking ourselves, is this real? Did this actually just happen? Now, one of the first things we need to understand is the woman is actually really surprised. She's kind of shocked that this has happened. She is what's realized is what she thought she was in control. The living God has actually taken things over here. Right. And now she realizes I'm not actually in control. I don't have control of what's going on here. Now, there's been some debate. Is this actually Samuel that's come up? And the text in my and I only saw one commentary that tried to dispute this, and it wasn't even one of the commentaries I had. They were just quoting somebody. So I don't know how reputable this guy is. There's only one that actually said that this wasn't Samuel. The text Everything in the text makes it clear that this was Samuel. Now, this is in no way trying to validate mediums or necromancers, right? What the scripture had made clear, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, are these things are detestable to God. And it's very, very important that you do not play around with this sort of thing. Our world is sometimes made light in its arrogance and its stupidity of these sort of things and even turning Ouija boards into games. Folks, this is foolishness and it is an abomination and you're playing around with true and real forces here. Now, this is in no way also saying that this lady is the one who made all this happen. What I believe is going on here is God is using this as a final way to speak to Saul, to reveal himself to Saul. This is one of those things, again, Saul meant it for evil. God is going to turn around and reveal his glory despite their ill intentions. It's showing that God is still ultimately the one who is in control here. And so Samuel says, why have you brought me up? And Saul answers, now, 
I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me. And God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Notice he doesn't say that he killed all the priests and that he's been trying to kill David. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. So in other words, he's saying, God's already talked to you. He's already answered you. For the Lord has torn this kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Now, this is the only thing that is new. Everything else has been told. He knew that the kingdom was given to him to somebody who was better than him. He just, this is the first time Samuel used the word David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. God answered Saul. It just wasn't what he wanted to hear. You see, friends, God does speak. And the issue is not that God doesn't speak. He has revealed himself in his word. He has revealed his will for us in the scriptures. God has spoken. His Holy Spirit is active in this world, convicting the world of sin. That's not the issue. The issue is in our rebellion, we do not submit ourselves to his will. Like Saul. See, God isn't a magic eight ball, nor is he an impersonal deity. He is good, but he is not tame. He is gentle, but he is not weak. He is approachable, but he is not controllable. God has a plan, a sovereign plan, and that plan is good. He has not called us to rule for him, but to rule under him. He is the Lord God. One of the things I love about C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia is the pictures he has of Aslan. It's this wonderful and beautiful lion that's a Christ representative. This lion, and in no way does he try to make Aslan this tame, almost kind of stuffed animal type lion. He shows him in all this fierceness of this lion. He is good, he's approachable, he is one to which people are drawn to. And you see the magnificence of his love, a love so great that he would give his own life. But he's not tame, he's not weak. He's meek, he's gentle. But he's not controllable. One of my favorite scenes in the Narnia, it actually comes from one of his lesser known books, The Silver Chair, and there's this child from the real world that's never met Aslan before, and she's dying of thirst, and she comes to the stream, and she's thirsty, and she sees Aslan there on the other side, and she's afraid. And so she begins to try to bargain with Aslan. She wants this drink, but she wants him to go away. Be tameable. Do what I ask you to do. 
I want this water. I need you to move away so I feel a little bit more comfortable. But Aslan won't do it. He won't budge. And so she begins to ask him, will you change me? Will you do something to me? His response, I make no promises. Do you eat little girls? I devour, I have devoured girls and boys, kings, men, women, kingdoms and empires. But he also makes clear there's no other stream. If she rejects him, she will die of her thirst. This is the living God. He offers us a salvation, a hope. A hope that comes to us by his grace. And each of us, none of us are worthy of this grace. Not one of you is more worthy than the other person of this grace or this mercy. But he is Lord. And he loves us too much to allow us to die of thirst from some sort of false water, some sort of false hope, some sort of false God within there. Yet even in this, what you see is Saul refuses to submit himself. He goes despondent. He goes into victim mode. He goes in despair, but he, notice what he never does. He never calls out for mercy. He never calls out forgiveness. He never says, I need to submit myself to God's plan. Instead, what we see is he's going to eat another meal. And this is Saul's final meal that he's ever going to have. And what's interesting about this meal is served by a pagan hostess. And it is a meal set for an earthly king. It's, it's a grand meal. She's going to fatten a calf for him. And in many ways, it is a dress-up charade that Saul has been playing all along. 1 Samuel chapter 20. Then Saul fell at once in the full length of the ground and was filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul. And when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand, and I have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on on your way. And he refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to their words. Once again, one commentator pointed out, we see him always listening to people. For some reason, he never listens to God. He listens to the word, so he arose from the earth and he sat on the bed. And now the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate and they arose and they went away that night. This will be his final meal and in many ways it was a facade. As a meal fit for a king. Emil saying, I'm going to do things my way. And in the end, he will die his own way. Continuously in open rebellion to God. But I want to speak to us now of a different meal. Another final meal from another true king. From a different true king. And so what we see, I want to point out two different meals, two different kingdoms. 
This is a meal that was given to us by the true anointed king many thousands of years later, Jesus Christ, God's true anointed, the one who would come into a world that was filled in open rebellion. Just like me, just like you, people who could not in our sinfulness choose God. But yet this true king came. He was fully submissive to the will of God to the point of death, that he would give his life on the cross, that in his death, and we saw him even wrestle with this in the Garden of Gethsemane, if there any way that this cup would be removed from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. And he submitted himself that on that cross he would take upon himself the wrath of sin upon all of us for our open rebellion against the true king and Lord God. He took that wrath upon himself on the cross that we, though we were open rebellion to God, might receive forgiveness, though that we might, who are dead to our sins might be received the gift of life in Jesus Christ. And he shared this meal not just with himself, but a different kind of meal. Not a meal that was a facade that puffed himself up, but a simple meal of a bread and a cup. And he pointed this meal for his followers to share with them a new sense of hope, a new sense of freedom, a hope of a different and a better kingdom, a hope that will not disappoint.